You are listening to a podcast from The National. The richest and most powerful people met at the World Economic Forum in Davos. The range of topics was as wide-spanning as the challenges the world faces today. Although this year's forum wasn't as well attended as previous iterations of the prestigious event, it still gathers important leaders from around the world. But with so many pertinent issues, such as climate change, the gender gap, and trade tensions looming on the world, is one week enough to solve the world's biggest crises? This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr Wesmi. On this episode, we'll look at what, if any, effect the sheer density of power located in Davos has on the rest of the world. Leading the National's coverage at Davos was Mina Al-Arabi, Editor-in-Chief of The National, and Mustafa Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Speaking to world leaders and monitoring the pulse of global trends, they join us today to discuss the role the World Economic Forum will play in 2019. Thank you both for your time. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. I want to start off the conversation on what was a big topic this year, climate change. There was a real urgency in the call to action at this year's forum. Sir David Anborough, the legendary BBC journalist who brought wildlife and a love of nature to millions around the world, spoke at the beginning of the address. Let's listen to what he had to say. Think of your children and your children's children and what we are doing to the planet at the moment. And could you look them in the eye and say, I knew what could be done to stop the degradation of the environment and of the climate. But it was too difficult and rather boring. And I failed to do it. And you are now going to take the consequences. This is a warning to the world. You have the steward of environmentalism urging world leaders to take action. But is it falling on deaf ears, Mina? It isn't falling on deaf ears in the sense that people realize this is an issue and that they have to care about it. Partly, if it's if we're talking about governments, especially in Western Europe and in the U.S., there is concern about it. And if you're talking about CEOs, a lot of companies feel like they have to have at least a sustainability track that's there. So it's not falling on deaf ears. I think um, Sir David Attenborough's statement about how strong we've become and our ability to, as humans, to create mass destruction and eliminate entire ecosystems was a way that people hadn't before thought of. You know, this this strength that could be so detrimental to children and grandchildren of the attendees. Um, so I don't think it's falling on deaf ears. The issue is s- some people are worried that the momentum has been lost because of the U.S., the change in the U.S. when it comes to the climate agenda. Uh, other people are concerned that individual measures alone won't work and you need a multilateral approach. And that multilateral approach across all the different agendas is now weakened. And so the point is that even if we know this is an emergency, do we have the energy and the willpower and and the collective responsibility to act? And I think that's where the gap falls at the moment. I mean, it's not that it falls on deaf ears because actually the audience in Davos is probably one of the most aware when it comes to climate change. They very much believe that we have to take action now. Many, many people were saying it there. But the, in the past, you look at the Paris Agreement, the, the, the strategy was, let's get countries together, let's agree what we need to do, and then we'll follow through. That's broken that process. 
even if the agreement's still in place. So really, we were looking for signs of how can we actually get to where we know we need to go, but without necessarily having to rely on elected governments that, for various reasons, can't necessarily follow through on promises. And you had the Brazilian president there, um, Bolsonaro, who's a very vocal critic of climate change. They call him the Trump of the tropics. But even he sort of kind of changed he did he did because he knew he he was speaking to the room like any politician but these guys the base that gets these populists and nationalists elected frankly their priority isn't isn't climate change so really we're looking to the private sector and so society and civil society and groups like that to actually do something and i i think you couldn't move five yards in davos this year without tripping over some climate change event or panel or discussion So you've got the will and the energy, but as Mina was saying, will it be enough localized with all these initiatives to make up for what's not happening on the national level anymore? You had Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. She also had a powerful message for world leaders. You don't have to cede power by acting on climate change. Uh, There's nothing to fear about your individual political status. Uh, actually, this is about being on the right side of history. Do you want to be a leader that you look back in time and say that you were on the wrong side of the argument when the world was crying out for a solution? She said something interesting. You don't have to cede power. This gives us a unique insight into power dynamics at the very top level. Can leaders harness this global call to action to their advantage? Can we see elections won on climate change policies in 2019? Well, so far, none of the Green parties where they exist have been able to win elections en masse. We've seen their numbers slowly grow. I don't imagine anybody representing just a green or a climate agenda making it to the top, but it's become part of some of those discussions. Unfortunately, what we've seen, and this was what Mustafa was saying earlier, is populists and extreme nationalists are using it against the climate agenda and saying we have to have our autonomy and our sovereignty, which is exactly contrary to what is needed to have proper international action on climate change. There's a denial of facts on the ground. And because those that oppose, you know, real action at the national level, at government level, no matter what facts you throw at them, because ideologically they're against the idea of of what needs to be done regarding climate change, they believe it's a fear, project fear, um, to steal from from what they say in the UK about Brexit, that they that they just bat it back every single time. So they, they really, it, it, you can't convince um, those kind of people that they need to do something. So really, it, it, to a certain extent in Davos this year, it was preaching to the choir. Everybody knew what needed to be done. Well, almost everybody, I would say probably 98% <laughs> yeah. of people there knew what needed to be done, understood that, it, that it's a big issue. But right now, we seem to be at an impasse. We're stuck. It's interesting what you mentioned about um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. She's like the new Justin Trudeau. So she says all the things that are popular amongst, you know, younger generation, also popular amongst people who are more liberal, more left-leaning. But unfortunately, when you look at the international stage, she and Justin Trudeau are more of the margin than the power brokers, the decision makers on the world stage. So we're talking about shifting power dynamics. There was a lot of young people at this conference, more than in previous years. 16-year-old climate change activist Greta Thunberg tried to trigger a panic attack in world leaders. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. 
I want you to act as if you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if you would, as if our house is on fire. Because it is. Her generation will inherit a world in crisis. So how do we empower them? Well, it, it, I think there's a f- a, some kind of a foot race going on at the moment between the, there is a younger generation, you call them millennials, alpha gen, whatever you want to call them, that understand that climate change is an issue now. You had, uh, they had six co-chairs at Davos this year that, that were young, under 30. And one of them from Sweden, uh, Nora Baruba, said, that, you know, uh, we're not going to stand silently on the sidelines anymore when it comes to climate change. We're going to do something. So really, it's a question of how quickly is this situation going to disintegrate before the younger people become essentially those electing those in power. So the private sector that probably is is more advanced in terms of understanding that their new constituency are millennials, are people on social media, are those vocal people that will hunt down companies that don't make the right choices. But will, will it be in time for when governments start to turn around and say, actually, this is our new constituency too. These are the people that are going to get me elected. But you know, what's interesting, I think, for the private sector, they care about young people not only because they're going to be their consumers or eventually their shareholders, but also they're the people they want to recruit. So they want to be attracting the best talent they absolutely can. So they're much more immediate and thinking, okay, if I want the top 1% of Ivy League schools in the US or I want the top 1% of, of students anywhere in the world to want to come work for my company, and these are the big multinationals that attend Davos, then we have to be making... You know, we have to make sure that we're saying the right things and that our own internal processes attract that talent. And that's why they're more immediate than than politicians who are thinking, oh, okay, still my core constituency is people in their 30s, 40s, 50s who care about tax breaks. 50% of the people graduating from these Ivy League schools are women. Gender parity is an ongoing issue. It's a challenge that's long overdue. In 2018, three quarters of the attendees at Davos were men. This year, the World Economic Forum championed gender equality around the world. But do we need more than just talk on the topic? You know, I think the World Economic Forum gets a lot of bad rap on the issue of women. And to be frank, they do a lot of behind-the-scenes work because they've they've launched this new initiative. It's been going on for two or three years now, but it's gaining momentum. It gained momentum this year, which is about helping countries set up their own national task forces to tackle Uh, gender discrimination and to try to close the gender gap. And the interesting thing about this is that the World Economic Forum is bringing its expertise and they've been doing the gender gap index since 2006, their expertise in measuring how countries are doing. They're bringing in different elements from the private sector and civil society, but they're working with individual countries saying, we understand there are cultural, historical norms. And so we're going to work within your context to improve this particular agenda. And it was really interesting. I met with various people. There was the minister of finance from Chile and Chile is one of the countries that have signed up to this. And it was fascinating because he was talking, you know, we know there's an economic imperative, but he's saying about what they've done in order to meet that economic imperative. They're not selling it as this is the right thing to do, but this is the business model. So there's more than talk there. However, when you step back, you still see that at the World Economic Forum, in the annual meeting in Davos, only a fifth of the attendees are women. And, And the reality is it reflects the power brokers who are attending, because at the end of the day, it's companies who are attending or governments who are sending their delegates. So it's not the forum who can say you can have this. And it was very controversial, I believe three years ago now, when the forum said, if you are a company, so if you're a strategic partner, you get five badges, five attendees. 
one of those five has to be a woman. And that's how they broke that 20%. They, they could never reach the 20% mark. They had to insert that quota. And a lot of companies got annoyed. And then what was really worrying was some companies decided to bring assistance on the white badge. And so then the, the next year, the firm were like, it has to be a woman who's in a management position or a member of the board. And then they switched it over. So it was actually, it was quite depressing to see that conversation over the last few years that companies can still be that archaic. It is getting better, though. In a microcosm, that's the pros and cons of quota systems. Right. Essentially, right? Which people continue to debate whether you need them. And probably in the beginning, you do need them. But, you know, but hopefully the idea is after an amount of time that you don't. But more broadly, you, you know, when you, see, when you think of the 20th century and there were, there were sort of leaps forward in terms of women's involvement, whether it's, you know, women's suffrage getting the vote or women generally in the workforce, you needed huge outside forces. Think of the First World War, you think of the Second World War. We're in a period now of immense disruption, um, politically um, driven as much by technology. And I wonder if, you know, this, these forces of disruption, you know, one of the things that might help push through is, is somehow getting to a tipping point on, on gender parity in various aspects of society. You know, it was interesting what you said about quotas. I moderated a session and there were about 30 people there from heads of states to ministers to CEOs. And I asked them at the halfway through the conversation, said, who believes in quotas? And about 90% of them believed in quotas. 90% said to me, we believe you need quotas because you need that force, that change top down. And then that that takes its own time, but after a while it becomes dynamic where you just get used to seeing women in these positions and then it opens the doors for, for other women. I mean, the private sector, I mean, there's been research on this that listed companies that have more women on their boards uh, do better. They just do. And I, and, and I think it comes, if I, if I don't stretch this point too far, you know, they, they talk about, you know, diversity, diversity in nature, diversity in, in the business world, diversity everywhere. You need diversity of skills, opinions, points of view, experience. If you have the same group of people that come from the same background all the time, then in times of crisis, you may not necessarily have what's required to get through it and succeed. So it, it's a matter of survival more than anything, actually. And I think maybe things like quotas, tools like that help people begin to see that over time. So obviously Davos will play a huge part in policymaking and preparing the world for the coming issues. But it's also a chance for tech giants and those movers and shakers in the industry to showcase their predictions on future technology. Mustafa, what was the biggest tech trend coming out of the forum this year and how will it impact us in 2019? From a personal point of view, um, I, I, I left the forum pretty terrified about technology. And, and, that, and, that was, and that was partly because I did not understand how one of the most powerful technologies that's being developed, artificial intelligence, is completely dominated at the moment by only two countries, the, U the United States and China. And there is a danger if they own that technology almost completely, then the rest of us, I mean, you know, we're not going to be left in darkness, but it's going to be very, very difficult. So I was quite heartened when uh, the UAE announced that it's going to have an advanced research center in Dubai, uh, World Economic Forum, Fourth Industrial Revolution Center. They're going to be trialing, um, piloting projects on AI, on blockchain, on precision medicine. The rest of the world needs to catch up on this. So I think that, and, and, I, and I remember that the, the Chinese vice president um, did say that, you know, technology isn't just about developed nations, it's about the rest of the world too. And I think perhaps that's one big theme is how can, um, you know, the rest of the world catch up 
on these technologies that we acknowledge are going to be changing the world. Well, you can't really talk about developing nations being tech giants or developing, being stalwarts of technology without discussing Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, the Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, said data privacy and access will be high on the agenda at the G20 meeting uh, in June that he will be hosting in Osaka. Why is that such a growing concern for global leaders? And can they do anything to help protect our privacy? Well, cybersecurity was, was an issue that was being discussed throughout the week in Davos and I think has become paramount in everybody's minds. But, and cybersecurity, not only in terms of countries, which is very important, you know, there's fears about the possibility of a cyber war taking down entire electricity grids or, or you know, disrupting airports or so forth. But then there's also the privacy issue, the personal privacy issue, where people are really scared. And I think if we want e-commerce to develop, if we want banking to develop to the next stage, you need to give people assurances that their data is protected. And 2018 saw too many data breaches across too many platforms. And so it has to become government regulation. And this is the interesting thing, again, that happens at the World Economic Forum is because you do have the private sector and the public sector, and you have differing interests. You know, there are companies there that want to make maximum profit. That is their ethos. That's what they're there for. And then you have countries who are beholden to these tech giants, um, but want to kind of rein them in now. And, you know, we saw that very famous uh, Senate hearing with Mark Zuckerberg last year, where the senator is asking the questions, clearly don't understand Facebook, don't understand the internet. And so you have people from governments that are trying to say, not only do we know what you're doing, we know how to regulate you. And tech giants often looking at them and saying, you don't have a clue. We're beginning to scratch the surface on this. I mean, the fact that uh, Shinzo Abe has said it's going to be a big part of the G20 is important. I mean, the phrase that, that, that came up a lot was about data sovereignty, whether mm -hmm. personal data sovereignty, national data sovereignty, who owns the data, how do you get to use it? I spoke to the, 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 the World Economic Forum's data policy head, Anne Toth, and she said, you know, there's a nuance here to data. Okay, your personal data, who you are, where you live, where you come from, you know, you're going to feel pretty personal about that. And you may not necessarily want it being exploited by big, big data company, uh, tech companies just because you get to use their mapping software. But at the same time, if someone came to you and said, you know, Nasser, can I use your medical data as part of research, research to help cure cancer? you're going to say, yes, please have it. So, you know, there's many, many dimensions to the data discussion. And this year, I think we're beginning to get into it. And But it, I think it's a long process before we understand how we regulate it, how, what the threats are, what the benefits are. Um, and if you think of it, the early days of maybe oil and gas, that's where we are maybe when it comes to data at the moment. So you both spoke to the executive chairman of Investcor. So I don't believe that in 2019 we are heading to a recession. We will head to volatility that maybe for some people will look really hard and may feel like a recession. Lacking, we're not there. Is there a recession on the horizon? So it was really interesting to sit with um, uh, Mr. Al-Ardi, who is the executive chairman of InvestCorp, and to get a sense from him whether he's worried that there will be a recession. There's been a lot of talk of a slowing down of economy. China's growth is slowing. The Chinese um, have a very good PR spin on this, saying before we had high speed growth, now we have high quality growth, which is to say, don't panic if our growth is, is not as fast as it used to be. And so people like him who are making international investments are looking at one China. They're also looking at the trade war and Brexit. So 
you know, especially because Investcor has assets in the UK, are they going to slow down because of Brexit? And his response was very interesting because 10 years after the financial crisis, he felt quite confident that the financial institutions are robust and they will, they'll be able to withstand pressure that is coming up economically. However, there's the questions of political volatility and can they stand up to that political volatility? Yeah, I mean, he didn't, he's not excluding the possibility of recession. He's not saying it's impossible, but he's saying that the, the concerns that the trade war or, or, or other geopolitical risks could trigger it, he doesn't think. So there could be another reason for it. He definitely, as Mina said, he definitely talked about there being volatility because people are panicking. And and, and definitely the message uh, from chief executives across the board from all over the world was, my business is great, but I can't really mitigate for geopolitical risks. But you know, my suspicion is, is that they might be hedging a little bit so that if they do not run their businesses particularly well, that they can blame it later on, at the, you know, the next AGM, that it was actually the trade war. Um, or something else, Brexit, whatever it is. And already you're seeing it. A lot of companies are saying, oh, I'm doing this because of Brexit. When in reality, the timelines of when decisions are made, when you move factories, do not happen um, you know, in, in the space of a year or two. They, they, you know, it takes five, 10 years for these things to materialize. So you know, Mohammed Al-Aradi was, I think, being very straightforward and saying that you know, I'm confident in my business. I understand the financial markets. They've made a lot of reforms and progress in the last 10 years. So, you know, we're not looking at a repeat of what happened 10 years ago. It was interesting, though, because I, you know, some of the best conversations that happened, that was, or of course, off the record, which is frustrating for journalists, because I want to tell you who gave me these pearls of wisdom, but I can't, so I'm going to claim them. So they, there was a sentiment that if there is an economic crisis, as what happened 10 years ago, you would not have the leadership of Obama and Gordon Brown and others to say, let's come together quickly and let's think about solutions together. The current political architecture is so fragmented that if there was a crisis, you're not going to have somebody in the White House or somebody in Downing Street or somebody at the Elysee who can say, let's come together and quickly mitigate against it. And that's the biggest fear. And that's, again, it goes back to the initial point I was making about multilateralism. Because there's these questions about the political relationships and about a belief in a collective order, there is a fear that if there's an economic crisis, what do you do? And, you know, it was one of the best speeches um, at Davos this year was by the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who spoke about the need for multilateralism, who spoke, of course, about the need of the international organization, the UN, being um, pivotal, but really didn't have answers. It was more a call to the world to say, you know, be warned, we need need to protect our, our ability to work together for a greater good. The World Economic Forum has the ability of bringing some of the world's most powerful people and bring them to one city. Village. We've, one village. <laughs> so we've heard the talk. What is the one thing that leaders need to do right now? Get serious. I mean, you just look at the, the Brexit discussion or the U.S. shutdown conversation. Really get serious. Stand up. Um, and take responsibility for the positions you have. That would be my one thing. Uh, I think that leaders have to understand that if they allow this vacuum to continue, that it will be filled. And it might be filled by you know, the, the private sector, corporate interests, non-governmental agencies. And actually, if, 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 if I want to scare them, if I want to make them panic, is once you do that, it's very difficult to wrest back control. 
So, you know, you, you do that at your own peril. You worry about your own narrow interests uh, to your own potential detriment because it's very hard to grapple with corporations, as we mentioned earlier about the big tech companies. Once they have dominance in an area, you aren't going to get it off them easily. Mina, Mustafa, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Nasir. Thanks to Mina Al-Uraibi and Mustafa Rawi for their time. I'd also like to thank Erika Al-Kirshi for producing the show. You can find The National's coverage of Davos at thenational.ae. You can subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite app. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.